Hey, welcome back to the Motivational Intelligence Podcast. I'm Sean Johnson, and today we're bringing you a conversation with a complete badass, Jeff Glassbrenner. So here's a quick bio on Jeff. Jeff is a three-time Paralympian and two-time world champion in wheelchair basketball, where he also holds a national championship scoring record with 63 points and 27 rebounds in a single game. He's an Ironman triathlete, having completed 25 Ironman races, which, if you don't know, is a 2.4-mile swim, 111-mile bike ride, and a 26.2-mile run. So it's insane. In 2013, Jeff became the first physically challenged athlete to complete the Norseman Extreme Triathlon in Norway, widely considered to be the most difficult triathlon in the world. Jeff is also an accomplished mountaineer, becoming only the second amputee to summit Mount Aconcagua, and was featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated for his summit of Mount Everest. Jeff is actually in the midst of the Explorers Grand Slam, a challenge to summit the highest peak on all seven continents, as well as skiing to both the North and South Pole. Jeff's journey started at the age of eight years old when a traumatic farming accident left him as a below-the-knee amputee. Jeff is married with two children, has traveled to 49 countries, and is a sought-after motivational speaker all over the world. In this conversation, we talk about the accident that started it all, his time advising Dwayne The Rock Johnson on his blockbuster role in Skyscraper, his journey in professional wheelchair basketball, raising children, his relationship with his parents, and a whole bunch more. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Jeff Glassbrenner. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is brought to you by Two Logical's new virtual seminar, Adapt, How to Thrive in a World of Turbulence. Join David Naylor in this exclusive live event with leadership insights on how to effectively transition and manage your team remotely, create a new team purpose and vision for 2021, turn fear and uncertainty into consistent motivation and action, and a whole bunch more. Go to twological.com for more information on dates, and as a listener of this podcast, you get a 20% discount on tickets. Just use the code ADAPT2020 at checkout. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is also brought to you by Mojo, the mental fitness app incubated at Too Logical. With new insights and guidance every day, people that use Mojo report feeling less stress and more motivated, boosted performance at work, and improved well-being at home. You even get access to episodes of this podcast up to two weeks early on Mojo. Mojo is available through invitation only, so join the waitlist at joinmojo.com to reserve your place in line. Well, welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, the next episode of the Motivational Intelligence Podcast. I've got Sean Johnson here in the studio with me. Uh, this is David Naylor. And we, we have a, uh, a really phenomenally interesting and accomplished guest with us today. You know, I always like when we're kicking off the podcast to do a little bio or a little profile of the, the individuals that are going to be uh, sharing the show with us during that day. And the gentleman who's on the show today is actually one of the more challenging people for me to come up with an introduction for, not, not because he hasn't accomplished anything, but because he's accomplished so much. How do you fit it all in? Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what I decided to do to kick off the, the show today and, and introduce our, our guest is I want to steal an introduction from uh, that somebody else had given for Jeff Glassbrenner. And, and Jeff, I'm going to do a little, uh, uh, put you on the spot a little bit. I want to see if you can guess who gave you this intro. You, I imagine you've had a lot of intros, but I think this one will be pretty, pretty easy for you. 
So this man that I want to introduce is the inspiration for my character of Will that I am playing. He's the first American amputee to climb Mount Everest. He's a three-time Paralympian. He is a world champion wheelchair basketball player. He is, for this character, my greatest inspiration. So allow me to introduce the amazing Jeff Glassbrenner. So Jeff, if you would, do you remember who gave you that introduction? Yeah, that's a pretty easy one. one. It was Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So that was a pretty awesome introduction and a pretty good moment for sure. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about how you and uh, how you and The Rock uh, came to came to know one another, and and how he came to be giving you that introduction. Yeah. So it was kind of weird. I was uh, training to climb uh, Mount Elbrus, which is the highest point in Europe, which is in Russia, and uh, I was training really hard for it. All of a sudden, I received this email and uh, later on a follow-up phone call saying that there's this actor that would like to meet me. That he's going to be an amputee in this upcoming movie. And I'm like, well, I'm training really hard. You know, I wouldn't have the opportunity to, you know, come there in person, but I'd love to talk to him on the phone. And uh, they're like, no, uh, the, the, the actor that wants to meet you is Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and he would like you to come to Vancouver, Canada. I'm like, well, let's make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty easy for me that I could spare a couple of days to go up there to Vancouver and hang out with them. But the movie that we're talking about is uh, Skyscraper, and uh, it stars uh, Dwayne, and he is an amputee in this movie. And so they come to learn about me through HBO Real Sports. They did a segment, and DJ actually has a program on there. It's called Ballers. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty cool. Check it out. But they, uh, you know, tossed around my name to to DJ, and and he said he wanted to meet me and get, you know, actually get schooled on how to be an amputee. And so I went up there to Vancouver, Canada, for two days and hung out with him. I got to be on set. And if you've seen the movie where he's running from the skyscraper, or actually running from the crane and jumping onto the skyscraper, I actually got to yell action and cut. So that was uh, that was a pretty cool moment and uh, a great experience. That's cool. That's like an iconic scene too of him. Yeah, it was really cool. But I also got to be with him uh, when they did the the red carpet um, premiere and stuff. So I got to be there to hang out with him when he was on uh, Good Morning America and and, uh, be a part of that after party and all that fun stuff too. What an incredible experience. Yeah. What was it like walking the red carpet with all the people taking uh, photos and all of that? That was pretty (laughs) phenomenal. Ah, yeah, very different. Uh, not the kind of life that maybe I'd want to live, but, but it was kind of fun for those for that night for sure. But uh, yeah, just a lot of a lot of people asking questions and a lot of people taking pictures. But but a really cool, really cool experience. My wife got to go with me, and so we kind of had date night there on the red carpet. So it was fun. That's 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 a hell of a date night. That's p- tough to beat that one. It's yeah, hard I, to top that one. Yeah. 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 I don't I don't know that any of us are going to be able to experience <laughs> a date night that quite meets that scale. <laughs> So Jeff, you you spent it seems like a, a good chunk of time with The Rock, kind of schooling him on, you know, playing an amputee. Can you take us inside those conversations or that that day or that time spent with him? You know, what what were you guys talking about? What kind of questions was he asking? What were you filling him in on? Yeah, first of all, he's like the most down to earth guy. Like you see him in the movies, and he's really cool and and really kind of approachable. He was even better in person. You know, just a just a cool person. But he's like six foot six, two hundred and seventy five pounds. I am not, so it's a it's kind of intimidating to stand next to him because he's a, he's a big guy, but he's just a, the most gentle giant you'd ever see. And so. 
you know, got to hang out with him. He asked a whole bunch of different questions about, you know, what it's like to be an amputee. And, you know, he wanted to make sure his limp was right. Cause you know, as, as perfect as I think my walk is, I still have a little limp. And they wanted to make sure that they could, you know, portray that accurately. And even the biggest part, I think, is he wanted to know what mentally what it's like to be an amputee. You know, people look at you different. You feel kind of different about yourself sometimes. And so he wanted to make sure that he could accurately uh, portray, you know, everything that I was experiencing. And we even talked about phantom pain. It's pain that I have um, in my foot that I don't even, you know, have anymore. And so the nerve endings are, you know, kind of firing and, you know, it feels like I can wiggle my toes and shake my ankle and just kind of weird. But, you know, so we talked about different things like that. So he, he just wanted to make sure that he could, you know, be a legitimate amputee and, and portray it in, the, in the, the way it should be portrayed. Yeah. So you, you touched on, you know, he was curious about the, the mental side and you touched on a, a couple of things there, but I'd love to, you know, go into a little bit more detail of, you know, when he was asking about the, the mental side and, and the emotional side of it, what were some of the things that you guys were talking about? Well, he wanted to know certain instances in my life where maybe I've been treated differently for being an amputee and kind of what I thought about it, how I felt. And so he just wanted to just kind of want to know what it was really like. You know, there's some days that my leg really hurts and, and he wanted to know how it hurt. You know, some days, you know, I'll have a, an open wound and I'll have to know how to take care of that or, you know, I'll have to, you know, do things differently than an able-bodied person would. And so he wanted to make sure that he knew, you know, everything that I had to deal with, you know, like showers are difficult, you know, for an amputee because I, we don't want to wear our leg in the, in the shower because we want to get everything all clean, right? And so, yeah, so things like that. And so a lot of amputees fall in the shower and they'll break their other leg. And so, you know, just, we're sharing stories like that. And, and, you know, he just wanted to know everything. And, and he just, he grilled, he grilled me about what it's like. He had very specific questions that, that he wanted to answer, you know? You know, it's interesting. You, you talked about that in the book and it's, if, you know, you don't, you don't really think about all those little life challenges, like, you know, getting into a bathtub, you know, kind of thing like that. And, and I, I remember when I, I read that in your book and I was thinking, wow, yeah, that would be a challenge. Cause you kind of have to jump over the, the sill and you're jumping onto a surface that's slippery. And yes, yeah. you know, so there are that decidedly considerations that, that you don't, you wouldn't normally think about. So that makes total sense. Exactly. Yeah. So he just wanted to be, uh, wanted to know what it was like. And so I thought it was really neat. You know, he could have just, you know, done his own thing and not really researched it or not really wanted to understand the role, but he, he was very, very meticulous on, you know, that he wanted to do it right. And so I, I was really appreciative of that. So you, you mentioned the, the limp kind of making sure that the walking was accurate. Was there anything else that he portrayed in the movie that, that comes to mind either physically like that, or even some of the mental and emotional parts of the movie that you thought, well, he kind of got that, that from me, that, that you saw that he really took it to heart? Yeah, I think like right away, one of the first scenes, you don't really know he's an amputee and, and then he's putting his leg on and you can tell he's in a lot of pain. You know, you can tell he was just having a bad leg day, we call it. And, and so it was kind of cool. He mentioned that and he and his wife just kind of looked at each other and like, all right, this is what we're going to deal with. And, you know, and so it's kind of, it was really neat to see him, you know, nail that role and nail that part. And yeah, and, and the run and the limp was was uh, spot on. And so, you know, I get to yell action and cut and I gave him a big compliment right after that because he, he did he did perfectly. 
That's nice. You know, it's you, you love to see things like that too, because if for no other reason than the fact that it does increase people's awareness, you know, about what amputees go go through and, and, and it also, you know, you, you would hope normalizes things a little bit more so that, you know, people, they, they don't look at you as being any different than, than anybody else. That's exactly right. And, and my son, it was kind of funny. He's like, oh, man, I, he's going to make amputees look cool. I'm like, yeah, well, so what am I, buddy? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what have I been doing? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's the plight of every parent. You want to look cool in your, in your kid's eyes, but no matter what you do, you just can't quite make it. You, know? you just can't do it. No? Uh, you try and try, but uh, hopefully someday. Oh, oh, man, Jeff, if you can't do it, I think I'm doomed. Uh, yeah. There's no way. <laughs> Uh, it, it's funny, my son, you know, he, he, he's, he's 22 now and, you know, he decidedly in his teens went through that, you know, dumb dad kind of, uh, of a phase. And so, you know, every now, every now and then when I did something smarter, I, you know, I had an intelligent answer to a question or something. I, and I just look at him, I go, yep, dumb dad does it again. You know, <laughs> I think he might've gotten it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so Jeff, let me ask the, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the, you know, the pain and obviously in all the sporting endeavors and things like that, there's, you know, issues that, that come up uh, with the leg. D do you still at this point, you know, have the, you know, with the nerves and things like that, the, the phantom pains and, and or has that subsided at this point? No, actually, I still have it. Tomorrow is going to be my 40th anniversary of me losing my leg at the age of eight. So it was weird that we, over the past weekend, we went glamping in the Smoky Mountains. And yeah, the last night we were there, I had phantom pain and I couldn't sleep all night. It just, it's, it's really kind of weird to explain because, you know, everyone's like, well, how can your right foot hurt? You don't have it. But it's like someone's taking a, a knife in the back of my, you know, calf muscle and just twisting it around. And so it's just a, just a lot of pain. Just like I said earlier, just those nerve endings that are just kind of confused and uh, they're firing and, and nothing's happened. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really weird. But yeah, a lot of amputees experience more than I do and some a lot less. And so they always said when I was younger that, that the more that, you know, the more the more advanced I got from my uh, my accident, the less that would happen. But I usually have it once or twice a month, so it's not it's not horrible, but it's just something that that you uh, come to deal with. Is it always the same type of sensation, or is it you know like one time you're feeling it in your calf, and or, you know, or the other time it might be you, the sensation would seem like it would have been more in your foot or something like that? Yeah, so it, it continually changes, and it's weird. Like the change in weather will really get me, like from a summer to fall, or you know, something like that, and or like you know, a, if I was in Colorado or something, a big snowstorm would come. I could really, it would really kind of set it off and stuff. So it's kind of kind of weird, but no real exact pattern, but. You know, they say some people stress will do that, but yeah, everyone's kind of different. Right. Just just goes to show you how much of a mystery the human body still is. Oh, incredible. Completely, yeah, because yeah. it doesn't make sense. Yeah, right. <laughs> it really doesn't. But yeah, it's yeah, just crazy. Wow. So so Jeff, I mean, you've you know you've you've done a lot in the you know in the course of your life, and the you know one of the things that you know Dwayne had talked about in the in the intro was that you were the first american amputee to climb mount everest and in you know that is part of and you and i talked about this before the you know your your pursuit of the explorer's grand slam and can can you tell us a little bit about 
what the Explorers Grand Slam is and, and you know, where you are in that process? Yeah, so the Explorers Grand Slam is a skiing to the North and the South Pole, the last degree of that. So, and then also summiting the highest peak in all seven continents. And so I am three quarters of the way uh, through it, if you will. The only mountains that I have left are Karsten's Pyramid, I have Denali, and then I have to ski to the North Pole. And so I'm on the end of it. I was supposed to complete it all already. I was supposed to be finished with it all on June 2nd. I was going to complete all of those this year. But uh, COVID rolled in and all those dreams and goals and training kind of rolled out. Wow. So so you've, you have yet to ski to the North Pole, but you have to the South Pole, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. The South Pole was uh, in 2018. Okay, what was that like? It was very cold. Um, <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, people ask me what You didn't like. do it in the summertime then, huh? <laughs> it, it was the summertime. <laughs> so the best way to describe it is like, fill up your bathtub full of ice and then sit in it and take a blank piece of paper and put it about three inches from your head and stare at that for like 12 hours at a time. It's the same in all directions. It's white and uh, white and very cold. And we're not staying at like a five-star hotel. So we're dragging all of our equipment, all of our, you know, fuel and, and food and, and tents and all that with us. So we're carrying about 150 pounds. We're dragging it with us. So how long were you, how long were you uh, at the South Pole for in order to be able to do that? So we were, I was there for about three weeks. So I summited Mount Vincent, which is the highest peak in Antarctica. And then we also did a 10 day ski trip to the South Pole. So yeah, so we'd ski for about 10, 12 miles a day. And then it'd be like, it'd be pretty much 12 to 14 hours, depending on the, the weather and the wind and, you know, how fast the group was on that day. But then we'd, we'd build our tents and get all of our, uh, our water um, boiled for the next day. And, you know, we'd sleep for a few hours and the sun would never go down. So that was kind of a challenge for itself, you know, to try to sleep and, yeah. and to get kind of comfortable for that, that switch between working and sleeping. So, in, you know, in terms of all your gear and everything, are you, are you pulling that on sleds? Are you wearing backpacks? How are you transporting all your gear? Yeah, so when we ski to the South Pole, we, we transported it all with sleds. And so we have a harness that we hook on. It has two leads behind us, and then we're dragging that. And it's pointing a compass directly to the south, the South Pole, and, and we're marching away that way. So it's, uh, it was fun. It was a challenge, but, but it was so cold. So when you get to the South Pole, I mean, you, you know, you think about summiting Everest, you know, I mean, it's obvious when you're at the top, but I never really thought about the South Pole. Like, is there a flag there or something to designate that you've made? Yes, it? yes, there is. There's actually, <laughs> yeah. um, we have a South Pole station. So on the United States, we have a big station at the South Pole. There's a, the geographic South Pole, and then there's the true South Pole. And so the true South Pole moves about 30, 33 feet a year. And so it keeps moving just a little bit as the earth changes and, and atmosphere changes and stuff. But then, yeah, there's geographic markers that are there. And so you know it. And then you also know it when your uh, compass and your GPS, you know, gets you right there on the spot. So, so that, was, uh, that was a tall tale sign that we made it. Very cool. I never knew that the South Pole moved. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's weird. I didn't, I didn't know that either, but... Uh, a little piece of trivia right yeah, there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Got to keep that in my back pocket. 
so Jeff, you've, you know, you've climbed, what is it? Five of the, of the seven uh, peaks for, for yes. each So we actually have to um, summit eight for the seventh. So for uh, Australia, there's a little conflict between what is the highest peak. So it's either Carson's pyramid, which is in Papua New Guinea, or in the, the true continent of Australia, which is Mount Kosciuszko. Um, and the Mount Kosciuszko is pretty much just a day hike. It's only about 4,000 feet of elevation. Uh, I think it's 7,000 feet of elevation. So I went there and actually climbed with my, my son. And so I did that with him. And so that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. So of all the peaks, Jeff, I mean, obviously Everest is the, you know, it's kind of the granddad or the most famous of them. Yes. Was, was Everest also, was that the most challenging, you know, and involved of the mountains that you climbed? Yes, by far. So I just didn't really know what to prepare for it. And so that was my second of the seven summits. And so my first one was uh, Aconcagua in South America. And, you know, training and, and staying there for Aconcagua, that was actually my first time sleeping in a tent. And so I had, I had to learn a lot. You know, I always figured if you have a dream and a goal, you know, you just find the details and, you know, and, and then go try to accomplish it. And so for me, me not sleeping in a tent was just a detail. And so I just had to surround myself with the right people that I could learn and, and grow from there. So how long after you climbed Aconcagua did you do Everest? So one year later. Oh, so that really isn't all that long of a period yeah, of time. Well, yeah, and even, you know, there's there's a, a line here from the, the cover story that Sports Illustrated did on you, and it was two months later, he was in Ecuador to scale Aconcagua at 22,838 feet, the highest point in the Western Hemisphere. How steep was his learning curve, which you just mentioned? Well, for one thing, he says, I'd never slept in a tent before. <laughs> <laughs> and this was two months after what? Can you fill in that? Yes, yeah, so two point? months after I climbed my first uh, mountain ever, and that was the Grand Tetons. And so that it's a pretty technical climb at just under 14,000 feet. And so it was kind of weird how I, I got introduced to all of this is, you know, my, my daughter has a seizure disorder. And so we went and climbed at the disabled climbing clinic. And so we were there for like two hours climbing and, and with their seizures, if she does something new, she won't have as many seizures. And so we're, you know, we're climbing away and having fun. And, and then after the two hour class, the guy comes and, and thanks us for coming and being a part of it. And he goes, we've been training all year to climb the Grand Tetons. And he goes, we had a teammate fall and break a leg last week. And so he goes, we have a spot available. He goes, we know you've never climbed before, but we know you're in good shape, but we can see it. And he goes, would you, would you want to join us? And I, I'm never one for turning down an opportunity. And so two days later, we went to the climb the Grand Tetons. And it was so cool just being a part of, you know, a team and learning something new and then finally standing on the top that, yeah, two months later, I, I had to go and, and kind of test my limits and spend that night in the tent. Wow. So was it when you were climbing uh, Grand Teton? I mean, obviously you're an athlete, you're in great shape. So physically, was that was it challenging to do with the elevation side and things like that? Or was it fairly, fairly straightforward? Uh, for me, it was fairly straightforward. I, I really do well at altitude. Um, so does my sister. Um, so I don't know if it's genetic a little bit or just that we're in, in decent shape. But for me, it was just, I was being around the people that, hey, all right, you're going to, you're going to experience some different things at altitude, like your respiration rate's going to, you know, change on you quite a bit. It's going to feel harder than what it is. And so for me, it was just being around the right people to tell me, hey, this is what you should expect and it's okay. 
And, and so it was just kind of having that trust built up and then pushing my limits. And so at that point, you know, I had done 25 Ironmans and so I'd been in really good shape. And so a lot of people have a hard time with just like the walking of it or the carrying the heavy pack. And so that wasn't the, the part that I needed to learn. Um, the part that I needed to learn is all the skills, you know, all the technical skills to be able to climb that. Yeah. And, and then two months later, you're in South America climbing, uh, climbing Aconcagua. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty amazing. So I was supposed to climb with a guide, a private guide from Colorado. And a, a couple of days before I was supposed to go, my guide's husband fell and broke his leg in an avalanche. And, and she said she couldn't go. And so she's like, well, this is climb again next year. And I'm like, well, I already got the kids taken care of. I got permission from my wife. You know, there's no way I'm not going, you know? <laughs> And so I got online and I found this group that was going to climb Aconcagua at the same time that I was going to be there. And so I, I joined the group and, you know, paid the fee and all that stuff. And uh, we show up and it's, it's five ladies and myself. And so I got to kind of become friends with the guide and stuff. And I'm like, you know, who, who, you, who are you most worried about, the amputee or the, or the five ladies? He goes, you for sure, the amputee. And because he had never seen that before or experienced it so he was like oh no this is a no one I, I know i can get the ladies at the top but you i'm worried about you know and, uh, so it's kind of fun so now you know we had uh we had a lady jen andrews on the um podcast last year yes. and she's sure, also, yeah. yeah and and the you know she's also an amputee and she talked to us about the you know the, the different legs for you know doing different activities and things like that so I'm assuming there has to be a special leg that you use for climbing, correct? There is. There's there's special legs for everything that we do. And so like someone said, why do you need so many legs? I'm like, well, you have dress shoes, you have tennis shoes, you have climbing shoes. I need that in a, in a different way. And so actually I have 11 different legs. Wow. And so um, actually 10, I lost one in Bali um, surfing. So that's another story, but I, uh, last year, lost a leg surfing. I hit uh, hit a wave and got knocked in and my leg popped off and I couldn't find it. So, but yeah, so I, I have different legs for different activities. So I have a climbing leg. I have an Everest leg that was made just for climbing Mount Everest. I have a ski to the North Pole and South Pole leg, a rock climbing leg, a couple running legs, cycling leg, and a few everyday legs. So I'm lucky. Wow. Wow. So you had a, you did have a, a surfing leg too? <laughs> I never, who would have thought? Water, you know? water leg, yeah. So one that can go in the water. And so it was an old leg that I kind of retrofitted to be able to go in the water. And yeah, I hit it, hit a nice little wave and, you know, kind of ate it and hit it so hard that when I hit the board, my leg popped off. There's a release button. And I think I accidentally popped the release button and it went bye-bye. So how did a guy from the Midwest pick up surfing? Oh, an opportunity, you know, anytime you go to Hawaii or Bali or I've skied or I've, uh, I've actually surfed in Australia as well. So yeah, I like to think that I would like to try anything, you know, especially sports wise. I feel like that if I'm in good enough shape and, you know, surround myself with the right people that I should be able to do anything. Yeah. Surfing is such a, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a poetic sport. I, I had an opportunity years ago. I was, I was actually in Hawaii on business. And one of the guys I was traveling with lives down in Cocoa Beach, which is a big surf down in Florida. And he's an avid surfer. So uh, he agreed to take myself and, and another guy out and he was going to teach us how to surf. So we went to a, we went to a, you know, a little surf shop that was there and uh, we rented some boards and, 
you know, he gets this little Ferrari like board, you know, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and he, and he picks two boards out for us and they're, they're like battleship boards, you know, yeah. they're, they're yeah. The, the minivan, right? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. And I'm like, I want a Ferrari board. And he's like, you can't, you You're can't do ready. a Ferrari board, you know, <laughs> you can't handle it. Yeah. yeah you can't handle it. And so, uh, so, so we get down to the water in the morning and, and he pulls out some wax, you know, and he's waxing up the surfboard. And I'm like, what do you, what do you got to do that for? And he's, and he, he says, well, you do it so you can get grip on the board, you know, when it's wet. And so I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so he tosses me the wax and I, you know, I'm like, okay, well, obviously this is important. So I put probably a half inch of wax on the board, you know, and, and then he, he picks up his board and he goes running out into the water and he jumps on it and he paddles out. And next thing I know, he's like a quarter of a mile out in the water. So I pick up my battleship board and I go running out, you know, and I drop it in the water and I, I jump on it and and I'm paddling and my back's burning. And, you know, I'm yeah. like, this is hard, you know, and I turn around and I'm like 10 feet from the shore. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I finally get out to where the, the water uh, started to break, you know, and he's kind of showing us how to pop up on the board and how to, you know, do all of those kind of things. So we're, we're out for maybe about an hour or so. And we, we go back and, and we're in the hotel and, you know, we all went to our respective rooms and I'm just about to get in the shower and the guy, one of the other guys who you know, was with me, who also had never surfed before, he, uh, my phone rings in the hotel room and he goes, he goes, you get in the shower yet? And I go, no. And he goes, <laughs> he goes all right. He goes, call me after you take a shower. And I go, okay. <laughs> so I, I get into the shower and as soon as the water hit my chest, I started to scream and, and I, I looked down and I had basically bikini waxed the whole front of my body, with, you know, and just stung like crazy. So that was my one surfing experience, you know, not, 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 not nor glamorous as losing my leg in Bali, you know. <laughs> yeah, I even had a wanted poster for it for a couple of days up. So I uh, didn't show up though. Didn't show up. Uh, uh, that stuff. Yeah, I think my, my first surfing experience, I actually got stung by a stingray. Oh, wow. Ooh. Yeah. Well, and it was a total rookie move too. I was, I was there. Like, again, I had the, the minivan for, a, <laughs> for a surfboard and, and, and they're going, you know, we start going out and I remember there was a, a guide there saying, Hey, just so you know, like when the tide comes in, surf, like stingrays will come in yeah. along the, the bottom. Yeah. So make sure you slide your feet when you're going back out. Okay. So I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll slide my feet. And you know, like one time in, I, I get going and like the first time yeah. I, I fall a couple of times and then I get going and I actually, you know, stand up yeah. and I can get to You're shore the yeah. and it completely goes out of my head. And, and then I start stomping back out and down immediately, oh. you know, one time. And then, you yeah, can exactly. Kind of yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't have to learn that one again. Oh, awesome. but great, great sport. A lot of fun. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So, so Jeff, you mentioned grace, you know, and, and in the book, obviously you talked a lot about grace and, and, you know, and everything she's been through in, in her journey and, you know, and she's got, it's a, you and I had talked about it before, a pretty, pretty unique, you know, medical issue. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what grace has? Yeah. So grace was born with a rare genetic disorder called mosaic tetrasomy 5P. There's only five known cases in the world. So not 
a lot of, a lot of people know about it and not, not a lot of research has been done on it, but her genetic disorder manifests itself with lots of severe seizures. So we'll have, you know, up to a hundred seizures or more a day, pretty much every day. And so, and she has lots of developmental delays. So she kind of operates probably about a three or four year old and she's about 14 right now. So she, uh, yeah, she's a pretty strong individual. And so I don't know where she gets it from, but she's uh, truly amazing. And you mentioned before uh, when you had taken her rock climbing that right. doing new things seems to uh, subside the seizures. Do you have any idea why that is or is it just something you kind of, you guys have figured out from trial and error? I just kind of figured out in trial and error. Like she's on a lot of medications for her uh, seizures and stuff. Um, so we're trying to do everything we can that way. But we've also just found out like we just keep her super, super active and, and with those new things. I don't know if your brain is like engaged in a different way if it's learning something new, but hers definitely does. And so when we went rock climbing, you know, for two hours, she never had a seizure. And so that was a slice of heaven for those two hours and stuff. So, but the more that she does it, the more that her brain learns it, the, the seizures come back. And so then we have to come up with a new activity. And so now we've pretty much done it all. So we are kind of going back to ground one and starting all over again. Yeah. Wow. With more activities. Yeah. There's a, so Jeff, there's a paragraph in your book that I like to quote. It's, it says, I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason. I believe that pretty much everything and everyone we encounter is by design. My accident, while horrible at the time, made me a better person. It opened my eyes to a different life. It made me do more with less. It gave me opportunities I never thought were possible. You wrote this in the context of telling the story of Grace at the Mayo Clinic. Can you give us a little context of why she was there and why you wrote this particular part around that story? Yeah, I, I think it's something I've always believed in. You know, truly, there there is no accident. There's everything does happen for that reason. We were in Mayo Clinic. We go there usually about once a year. Um, she gets uh, baseline testing, and so you know we find out if there's any changes going on in her brain and just to see overall health. And so there's you know, not a lot of studies done. So we're going to try to help you know get some studies done. And so you know we really believe that you know that Grace was meant to be with us. You know, we're, we're active, we're, you know, we give her the best opportunity to succeed at life. And I hope every parent does, but I really believe that you can only get what you can handle and, you know, we can handle a lot, you know, so. But the weird thing is like with Grace's seizures, they can range anywhere from grand mall seizures to head drops, but most of the time we know the seizure is coming on because she's got this big aura. So we, you know, know the seizure is going to happen. And Grace's aura is like a big gasp of breath. So all of a sudden, you know, Grace, you know, have a big gasp of breath. And we're like, uh oh, you know, we need to be real close to her to protect her when she falls. And then after that big gasp of breath, her left arm will start shaking, her left leg will start shaking, and her body will just start to convulse and and shake quite a bit. And then it's like someone's taking a light switch and, and turning Grace's brain off. And so she'll, her body will go limp for about 30 seconds. And then, you know, the cool thing about watching Grace have a lot of these seizures, you know, it kind of sounds weird, but, you know, as she's coming out of the seizure, it's kind of reverse order. Left leg will start shaking, left arm will start shaking, the body will start shaking. And then most of the time as she's coming out of the seizure, you know, she'll say, she'll, she'll have this big, big, big smile. And she'll say, I'm okay, I'm okay. And she'll continue on doing what she was doing before the seizure. And, you know, it's kind of a, one of the coolest things to watch is like, you know, all of us are going to be hit with, you know, difficult times, adversity, challenges, this COVID that we're going through right now, you know, 
And so when we're hit with those challenges, you know, how do you respond? Do you say I'm okay or do you kind of do the other way and give up and give in? And I just think that we always kind of move forward. We always say we can do it and, you know, live that life in the most positive way that we can. And so, you know, some days are not so much fun, but uh, we find a way to get through it and, and to live it the best way we can. I think that's such a powerful lesson right there. You know, so many people, they, you know, they, they move through life and whether they realize it or not, they kind of live in that victim space where, you know, everything is happening to them and they just kind of take on that sense of powerlessness and, and the attitude that comes with it. And, uh, you know, and they, and they give up all the control that they have in their life. And, you know, you said it really well, Jeff, that, you know, we're not thrown anything that we can't handle, but if you approach it with the wrong attitude, then it'll destroy you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I think a lot of people take that, that negative approach, you know, you know, look at somebody else and see, you know, they have this or have that. Why don't I have this or that? And so for me, it's just like, you take, take ownership of yourself, you know, find out what you can do um, to improve your situation, find out what you can do to maybe research more on the, the seizures, you know, just different things, to, to get you where you want to be. And so I think that, you know, everything does happen for a reason. And you know, a lot of times you, you, you create that opportunity. And so I think that I've been very blessed and fortunate enough to create some opportunity that, that happens in adversity. Yeah. We have a, we had another gentleman on the podcast recently and he was in, was in an auto accident and ended up paraplegic because of it. And he has a, uh, a sign in his bedroom that says, things don't happen to you. They happen for you. And so true. So, Jeff, I'm curious the that perspective that you have that you know things happen for a reason. Do you think that was something that was instilled in you by your parents before the accident, or do you think that's something that you kind of learned as a as an outcome of your accident? Well, I think it was probably both, you know, I mean, my parents were, you know, from the Midwest, hardworking, my mom was a school teacher, my dad worked at John Deere, and then we were farmers. And so I I think just being growing up on a farm that you have to deal with challenges, you have to deal with adversity, you have to kind of think on your own, because every day is kind of different. And, uh, you know, my parents were tough love, you know, there was no excuse why you didn't do something, you know, you just found a way to get it done. And so, you know, my dad was that way, you know, even when I played basketball, I'd score 50 points and, and dad would say, yeah, but you missed three layups. And so, you know, it was kind of that tough love. It's like, all right, you could have done this, but you also could have done that. And so I, I just think that that, that mindset, you know, I, I would just get a, a new leg and I didn't like it. And my dad's like, you got to deal with it. You know, we just paid a lot of money for this leg. You're, you're going to walk with it. And so it was kind of that, that mindset of like, you persevere and you find a way through it. Yeah. I, I remember years ago, I met a, a, a gentleman, Gus Fernandez, and he had a, a quote that's always stuck with me. In fact, I repeated it to my son yesterday that, you know, in life, you can make excuses or you can make yourself successful, but you can't make both. Yeah, exactly. So my, my dad always, um, to, you know, he'd always have little sayings and stuff like that as well. And so my dad had this one saying, I was having, having a hard time dealing with my disability when I was 12 years old and kind of what other people thought of me, you know, he uh, kind of took me aside and he's like, you know, son, you can either choose to be pitiful or you can choose to be powerful, but you can't be both. And so I just remember having a really hard time when I was climbing Everest. And I remember that being a big, 
big motivator of, you know, kind of get your butt in gear and, you know, be a, be a winner, you know, be that champion that you want to be. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've touched on it a couple of times, but Jeff, if you could, can you, you know, share the story for people that don't know of your accident? Yeah. So um, actually tomorrow will be my 40th anniversary. So on, on July 30th, uh, 1980, I was helping my dad out in a farm. And so like most farm boys, you know, I was a shadow of him. So whatever he did, you know, I tagged along, helped out and gotten away in every way that I could. And so we, uh, we had the task of going out into the hay field and cutting some hay. And so something I'd done with him hundreds of times before it felt like, you know, we got out to the hay field and, and started cutting some hay and all of a sudden we hit a rock. And so we have lots of rocks and dad turned off the tractor and he asked me to go do my usual. And so he turned off the tractor. I got off of my safe spot where I was standing. I walked around the tractor. I removed the rock and removed all the extra alfalfa from the mower. And then I went to get back onto my safe spot where I was standing and dad turned on the machine right before I got there, you know, in a split second, you know, my life had changed forever. My, my pant leg became entangled on the power takeoff. Um, it's on the back of the tractor. It spins really fast, very powerful, and very unforgiving. Another way to describe what took place that day was like the tractor was a large pencil sharpener, and my leg was a pencil. So it kind of grounded off and just kind of changed it forever. And uh, I remember laying there on the ground, you know, just being completely confused of what just happened. I remember looking down at my leg, and I could just see bones sticking out, you know, just for moments earlier. You know, I had my whole leg. I was normal. Then I also remember looking to my right and I could see my shoe about 10 feet away, you know, with my foot still in it. And so luckily dad, you know, quickly seeing what happened, turned off the tractor, kind of picked me up and, and then later, you know, applied a human hand tourniquet. And the doctors said that that act, you know, probably saved my life because of all the blood loss that was going on. Wow. Jeez. And so, and you're in, you, you said you grew up in Wisconsin. So were you close to a hospital and medical care or, I mean, just, you know, getting, getting the level of care you needed had to be a challenge. Yeah, it was. So, um, so we lived about four miles away from the hospital. So my dad, you know, quickly took me to the neighbor's house and then they loaded me in his car and then they took us to Boscobel, Wisconsin, which is my hometown. And then they gave me some more ice and they decided they couldn't uh, help me any further, like the care that I needed. And so then they didn't really have med flight back then. So I had to take a 70 mile um, trip to Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And so it was weird. It's a small town. So my um, uncle was actually the driver of my ambulance. So that was kind of cool too, I think. But he, uh, you know, he just recalls, I, I wanted to sit up and watch, you know, the, the river road as we went by and like hold me down and putting blood in me and all that stuff, fun stuff. But this is stuff that you remember um, going through as a kid. But yeah, I went to Madison and I had to spend 47 days of my life. You know, my heart had stopped uh, beating on a couple different occasions. So they had to jump start me back to life. I had 13 different operations to rid my body of all those infections. So it was a touch and go battle for 47 days. So what was it like for that, those 47 days? I mean, uh, were you conscious a lot of the time or was your, your, I mean, it sounds like you're having a lot of, a lot of surgeries, a lot of treatment, you know, when did the dust kind of settle and, and you maybe grasp what had happened? Yeah. The cool thing is like, you know, being a kid, you're kind of resilient. You can kind of, 
deal with whatever. And I thought it was, it was kind of fun to be in a hospital at the time because anyone that stopped by for a visit, you know, my cousins and friends and stuff, they'd bring me Star Wars action figures or Star Wars ships, you know, I was kind (laughs) of in the Star Wars then, you know, that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I think the, the big part of my reality kind of didn't set in until, you know, I went home and uh, when I went home, you know, everything was different. You know, I didn't have my leg. I didn't, didn't have my normal life. And so it kind of went through, you know, a couple months of not feeling so good about myself and, and feeling kind of sorry for myself and thinking about all the things that I couldn't do. And so that was a, it's a really hard time. So how did, and it's funny, I'm thinking of Sean, you and I spoke with John O'Leary, who was uh, pretty severely burned as a child and had lost all of his fingers, if I remember the story right. And he came home after being in the hospital for a long time and they were sitting at the dinner table and, you know, they were one of his, I think his siblings or something was feeding him. And his mom said, you know, no, stop that. He's got to feed himself. And he, he told a story about how angry he was at his mother for, you know, you know, cause he's, he's like, I can't feed myself. I don't fingers, you know, and, and, and she just, you know, was adamant that, you know, you, 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 you have to be able to, you have to be self-sufficient. So how did you break out or break away from that, you know, kind of, I'm, you know, I, I don't have legs like all the, the little, you know, little kids. Right. I can't run. I can't, I mean, that's a, that's a heavy, heavy thing to carry as a child. How did you, how did you get past that? Well, my mom, it's almost like you're, you're the other person that you interviewed. That mom was incredible as well. So I had a really tough, you know, mom was, and my story, my changing moment for me when I was kind of negative until when I was uh, changed to the positive side of life, I guess. I was sitting on the, I was sitting in the living room, you know, after a bad day, the day before, you know, kind of feeling sorry for myself. I'm watching TV, you know, flipping through, you know, both of the stations that we had back then, you know, not the five or 600 that we get today, you know, but I remember just, you know, barking in order like I normally did. Hey mom, give me a Coke. And so she shows up and she's like, this is the last Coke. And I'm like, well, can't you just go to town and get some more Coke this afternoon? And she goes, no, um, you don't understand. We have plenty of Cokes. This is the last Coke I'm to give you, you know, for now on, you're going to start doing things on your own and for yourself. And, you know, she was told me that I was no different than anyone else except for my negative attitude. And she said that was going to change. And so true to her word, she provided that tough love and she never did anything extra special for me that she wouldn't do for my brothers or sisters or anyone else. And so I think that was really kind of a big turning point for me in my life. I was lucky to have, when I was in the hospital, I had this nurse that was, it was really incredible. She took my mom aside uh, right before I left and she goes, the biggest enemy of a kid with a disability are their parents. They can either choose to do things for them or they can choose to let them be independent. And so I was very, very lucky that my mom kind of heeded that advice and kind of made me independent kind of almost from the beginning. But uh, yeah, like you said, you know, being the only kid that was different was really, really hard growing up in school. And so, you know, I was picked on and teased, you know, for being different. I was tripped in the hallways. And so we kind of had to develop that tough skin and, I remember always getting my legs made with cosmetic covers to make them look more real, even though they didn't. Um, and I remember wearing pants at all costs. You know, I tried to do anything and everything that I could to kind of blend in and, and be like everyone else, but I never really kind of could do that. But now it's kind of a flip script for me. You know, I wear shorts whenever I can. I do not get my legs with cosmetic covers. The only thing that I feel that that adds is just extra weight and, you know what, I don't need to carry around extra weight each and every step I take for having someone else to feel more comfortable 
about being around me. So if a person doesn't like me because I'm disabled or different, you know what, I'm probably better off without that person in my life anyway. And so it was just kind of that shift in mindset is like, when I was young, I tried to want to, you know, fit in. And now I kind of, you know, don't mind standing out. Yeah. Well, I mean, the teen years are so tough, you know, in the, in the best of situations for, you know, kids, you're dealing with all the hormones and all of those kind of things. And, you know, we're, we're, it's, we're all different in some regard, you know, in our own mind. Yes. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's so hard to navigate your way through that. When did the, when do you think the switch came, Jeff, when you, you know, you went from the fact that I need that, you know, I need to hide my leg to, you know what, it's, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Right. I think that big switch for me is when I went to school at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater and yeah, and then finally learned how to play wheelchair basketball and kind of given an opportunity to, to do something different, to do a sport that I was always told that I could never, ever play. So, you know, and that's such a, that's a wonderful story. And it's, you know, you talk about that in the book, the, it, it, there was a lot that I, you know, I took from the book in, in, in that regard. So tell us a little bit about how the, how that all came to be and and a little bit about your early experiences because it sounded like you you might have played a little bit of basketball you know before the accident but you know really hadn't played at all obviously you know after it so tell us a little bit about how that came together yeah so I never played any basketball the doctors told me I couldn't play in any sports whatsoever and so for me I was always my my sister was an amazing athlete and still is she scored 37 points in high school and so I was always there cheering her on but it wasn't until I went to school at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater that I got that chance and so it's a it's kind of a small school and and kind of spread out and so I had to do a lot of walking to and from class and I developed a sore on my leg and so when I get a sore on my leg I take my leg off and heal it up as quickly as I can you know it's like a good student you know I'm studying away and I have to go to the restroom and so, yeah I'm hopping down the hallway and this kid stops me he's like man you're missing your leg and I'm like yeah this I'm thinking to myself this guy must have been the valedictorian of his class you know he, <laughs> he, 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 the obvious buddy but but I was like yeah I'm missing my leg doctors want me playing sports and he goes well I mean, uh, let's, let's go play basketball. And, and I was like, nah, I, I can't play. I'm missing my legs. And he goes, no, nah, I mean, wheelchair basketball. And I'm like, they play basketball in wheelchairs? Never heard of such a thing. And so the, the weird thing about it is like, he was an amputee himself, but he was wearing shorts and I couldn't see that he was an amputee. And so the next day he brought me to the practice and I got to see him play wheelchair basketball for the first time. And I get to see how competitive they were. And, and, you know, back in my mind, I'm like, man, maybe if I get good at this, my sister could come watch me play instead of me watching her play. So, so it just kind of, kind of fell in, in place, so to speak. And so I get to meet um, my coach. And so he just really kind of became my first mentor in life. You know, he told me that, you know, don't ever let anyone place limitations on you, you know, and even worse, never to place them on yourself. And so, you know, he, he told me that, you know, if I want to accomplish something, find, find a way to do it. And so he took me under his wing and, and uh, taught me the very basics of wheelchair basketball. So you, you seem like a, you know, obviously a, a very accomplished athlete. Were you naturally good at wheelchair basketball when you started? I was not, not even remotely. Well, I mean, 
I mean, I was athletic, but I didn't have any of the skills. Um, the only time I'd ever been in a wheelchair is when they escorted me out, you know, of the hospital. So I didn't have any experience. And I just remember becoming frustrated right away. You know, we always want to be good. We want to, we want to be successful, you know, with really uh, without putting in that work. And so that was me, you know, I was like, I don't understand, you know, you know, my sister's good. Why can't I be good? As from my coach taking me aside, he's like, man, you've only sat in a wheelchair like four or five times. You know, your teammates have been doing this all their lives. And he, and he said, you know, I'd be willing to come in at five o'clock in the morning and teach you and, you know, for a couple hours and then, and then we'll see if you have this natural talent. And he, he worked on the skills part and I did have some talent, but more importantly than the talent, I had a great work ethic. And it was something I learned um, from my parents and learned from being on the farm. You know, if, if, if someone that was really good trained two or three hours a day, I was going to train four or five or six or seven hours a day. You know, I was going to do whatever I could to, to become just as talented as they were. So I wasn't afraid to work hard and definitely uh, it reaped some big uh, benefits, you know, over time. You know, it's, I think that's such a key point to bring out because it's, I think so many people, they look at somebody who excels at really anything in life. And, you know, it's it's so easy to say, well, you know, they excel because it comes easy to them. They excel because, you know, it's just- More opportunity, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, rather than, rather than really stepping back and saying, no, they excel because they practice more. They excel because they put forth the effort, they, you know, because they worked hard at it. And I think people so discount the value of that hard work and they just, default to the excuse of, well, it just comes easier to other people. Yeah, exactly. It's easier to blame someone else than to kind of bring your, your own self up. And so I just call that the mirror check is like, if I don't accomplish my goal, I look in the mirror and I, I know exactly why I didn't accomplish that goal. So you mentioned the, the coach offered to work with you before, before practice. What was that like? What did you, you know, what kind of training was he putting you through and what were you, what did you get from that extra kind of one-on-one time with him? Yeah, for the one-on-one, because I didn't even know how to push a wheelchair. I didn't know how to dribble a basketball. And so he had to teach me the very basics. But the nice thing, the great thing about what he did for me is like he wouldn't give me a, a more advanced skill until I perfected the one I was working on. And so he actually later on said it was kind of a cool experience because I didn't have any you know, bad habits already developed. And so he could teach me the right way. And if I listened to that, I could do it you know, just as good or just as fast as anyone else could. And so he said that was kind of cool because he kind of had a, a, a blank sheet of paper and, a, and he could mold me in the, in the proper way. And so, um, but I think more than, more than any of the skills that he gave me, it was just that mindset is that like not feel sorry for yourself. And if I wanted that goal, I was going to have to work to it. And, you know, he kind of, a few months of working out with him, he kind of put the goal of, uh, of trying out for the national team or, or, or making the national team. And so, isn't it really cool when someone else believes in you and you believe in yourself and, and he's really kind of put that goal or that dream in front of me. And, and we come up with a plan to make that, you know, dream, you know, a reality. And that was through a lot of hard work. And so started training six to eight hours a day, you know, six or seven days a week, I was doing whatever I could to realize that dream. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, fast forward, uh, there's, there's a lot in between there, but you know, this stuck out to me in, in the book, cause I'm a huge hoops fan and, I saw yeah. that line. I, I got to tell you, man, I had to read this like three or four times to make sure that <laughs> I was reading it right. <laughs> so in, I think it was either the 2003 or 2004. Four, uh, yeah. yeah, 2004. Okay. National Wheelchair Basketball Championship. You broke the scoring record with 63 points and 27 rebounds as a member of the Denver Nuggets, which that is... Was, it was a good day at the office. Oh <laughs> my God. That is an absurd stat line, Jeff. 
<laughs> yeah. But so, I mean, it's, it's funny though. You say that it's like, Oh, it's one game. I'm like, uh, it didn't just happen for that one game. It took, you know, 10 years of hard work of training wheelchair basketball to have that one day to come to fruition. And so, you know, like everyone, Oh, you had one lucky game. And I'm like, no, I had a, you know, a career of going for that lucky game or going for that win or, or going for those big numbers and stuff. So it wouldn't have mattered if we would have lost, but we won the championship. And one stat that you're not mentioning that was very important in that game. I did have one assist. (laughs) That's a big one. I'm not, I'm not a ball hog for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I think anybody that looks at at your career knows that that's not one lucky game. You've got a, a number of championships and, you know, world championship gold medal. But I am curious about that that particular game. I'd like to get to some of the other stuff uh, in, in a bit. But can you tell us about that game? Because uh, again, I'm a I'm a hoops fan, and and a, a stat line like that needs some explanation. Yeah, it was weird. I, like the week before, week before the championship, but we were uh, laying down sod in our our house, you know, in our front yard, and I, I messed up my leg, and I had like a little infection going on, and so. I was like, oh, I don't know, this is not a good time for me because I'm going right into the, you know, the the championships and stuff. And so I wasn't really expecting too much. And then our coach at the time, he's like, hey, this is my birthday. You know, he, it'd be awesome if you could win one for me. And because we had never won a championship um, with that team. And so it was kind of one of those extra motivations. I'm like one of those people, like if, if you give me a, a, a carrot, that's great. But if you give me two carrots, that's even better. <laughs> and so, so it was just kind of an extra little motivation to, to do it. But I had, uh, I had 31 points the first half and 32 points the second half. So it was a pretty even split game. And so and we all ended up winning by 10 points. And so we needed all, all of those. And so the, the weird thing about it is like, I never touched the ball for the first five minutes. And then I was like, all right, time to get going. Wow. So what do you, you remember feeling during that game? Because I, I imagine at some point you're kind of clicking in. Yeah, and, it is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was. It was just like, I could do no wrong. And it's like the, the, the hoop felt like it was the size of a swimming pool. It's like anything that I wanted to shoot would uh, go in. And it felt like it was going in right when I left my hand. And so it, it was just like one of those days that you, you train those 10 years for and you hope you have it one day. And you hope you have it at that moment and it happens for you. And so I've had a few games that, that have been like that. And it's just like, when you know it, you ride it out. And so it's like, all right, we're going to win. And this is how we're going to win. And so it's just kind of, you know, you kind of take it over at that mindset. It was not just on the offensive side, but, you know, blocks and, and other things as well. And so it was a, a total overall game. You know, it was, a, it, was a t- it was a team win. So I just had more points than the other team. So do you think the coach knew that you were in, that you were struggling coming into the game and and that's you know why he kind of added the 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 you know that kind of that added fuel to the fire of hey it's my birthday or was it, was it actually his birthday too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's the funny part it wasn't his birthday i'm like he goes it's not even my birthday it was last month <laughs> i was like oh you cheated what he was doing i was like wait a minute but no it was great and I, he knew that I was, I was struggling just mentally. I was like, ah, cause I mean, normally I wear my prosthetic all the time. I didn't even take it with me that weekend cause I couldn't get my leg on. And so it was just one of those was like, ah, you know, but that, that extra little carrot, this yeah, helped me uh, rise to the level I needed to go. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. That, Making up a birthday. That's a that's, that's like a, a Phil Jackson day. move yeah, right absolutely. there. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> he'd never done that to me before, so I was like, okay, we can do spot. that. There yeah. you go. He never asked a lot of me, and so I was like, all right, we can do this. I can I can come through for you. <laughs> and I did. So you were also uh, captain of Team USA at the World Championships when when you guys brought home gold. Yes. What, what was that experience like? It was great because uh, so we won two World Championships. So the first one was in Australia. It was my first time playing like in a USA uniform, and so it was really cool. Just there were a good core group of uh, young guys, and then a good core group of more veterans or more advanced guys, so to speak. And so the young guys kind of bonded and we, we won that first championship. And then uh, two years later, we went to uh, Kitakushu, Japan and won another one. And that's when I was the captain of that team then. And it was just, just amazing experience. You know, when, when you get to play uh, for your country, that's just so cool. And you get to wear that US uniform and, and when they play the national anthem, you know, those are, those are the moments you kind of play for and live for and, and really respect. And so it was, it was really neat to be the captain of that team. And it was even better that we won. Yeah. That's so cool. You know, you see that when you, you know, you watch whether it's a world championships or you'll, you know, you watch the Olympics and that has got to be one of the greatest feelings in the world to walk out and know that, you know, you are one of the select few that's you know been chosen to represent your country. That's, that's awesome. No, it's incredible. I mean, words can't even describe it. And so, yeah, it's an honor to to wear that uh, uniform, but, and then, and then have, you know, playing from your family and in front of your friends and, and everyone back home is really cool. Did you realize the magnitude of that in the moment or was it, or were you so kind of just myopically caught up in, you know, in the game at that stage that you, you, you couldn't even really relish the moment, but you, you know, it was more in hindsight that you, you the magnitude of it hit you. Yeah. I think the, like we just said the the later on the magnitude kind of hits you. I'm sure you're like, ah, oh, it's another game and you want to win that game. You want to win every game, but I've been to three Paralympics and only have one bronze medal. And so that was, I always wanted that gold medal. And so you know, we were on teams that say, you know, we were great individuals, but we could never pull it together as a team. And then we could never win as a team. We played the other countries that were less talented than we were, but we just couldn't, couldn't play together for the win sometimes. And so uh, later on, you just kind of realize that, you know, you're only given that, that moment for a brief amount of time. And, and if you don't appreciate it, it'll, uh, it'll escape you and, and you won't, uh, you won't get the whole grasp of it. So, yeah. People always, you know, you, you, when you, you know, you talk to world champions, Olympians, or, you know, even actors who win Oscars and things like that, you know, they, they're oftentimes asked, so, you know, where do you keep the gold medals? Is it some prominently displayed or are they buried back in the closet somewhere? Uh, so I have a workout room and so it's in my man cave. Um, so looking at it right now, I'm in the man cave. So I have my rings there, my, my medals and my my certificates for climbing all my mountains and, and all that stuff in one room. And so it's cool to, you know, take people and see them. And, but it's not, for me, it's not about the metal. It's more about that, that journey and, and that's, uh, that experience. And so that's, that's more than any of the medals or any of the certificates mean. Yeah. Well, Jeff, you mentioned there was, you know, kind of some runs where you, you couldn't, you guys couldn't quite get it together. And there was some where, where obviously you went all the way and, and, and brought home gold. 
What do you think the difference was in those two scenarios of, of, you know, what was the difference between when you guys were struggling versus when you were really clicking? Yeah, that's a, it's, I think it all comes down to the leadership part of it. The different coaches, pretty much all of the national championship teams and stuff. So different coaching styles and, and just different uh, ways. I mean, you know, as, even as a, if you had a company or whatever, you're going to have star players, but you got to have, you got to have play, you got to not only the best players, you got to have the right players. And so you have to have role players. And so we never, we had, we had a bunch of all-stars on our team. And a lot of times the all-stars couldn't play with one another in the most efficient manner. And so then we end up losing to teams that, you know, were less talented and less, less ability. And so that was frustrating to watch, but a lot of times you don't have control over, you know, all the situations that you'd like. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned, you know, leadership being the the differential there. And when you guys did bring home gold the second time, you were chosen as captain. What were you trying to do from a leadership perspective in that role? I just lead by example. I was the first person at the gym and I was the last person to leave. Um, I was there to answer any questions or, you know, I'd come from another championship team. And so I had, you know, I was, you know, one of the best players on the team. And so I think people respected, uh, you know, not only what I said, but, you know, how I lived my life, you know, I tried to be the hardest working person there. And so I think that that kind of rubbed off, you know, other times it was, it was a different way of when different leaders and stuff. So it's hard, it's hard to say it's never, you never want to point fingers and stuff, but a lot of times it's like, you know, you say one thing and do another is, is communicated differently to the team. So that's a, that's a great part about life and a great part about being a, on a team or an organization is, you know, you learn something from every experience. And so some, some experiences are better than others. Yeah. Well, it seems that's pretty obvious why uh, The Rock liked you so much, both the hardest <laughs> workers in the room. Yeah, really. <laughs> he is, for sure. <laughs> so, so, Jeff, you, you know, you, you scaled the, you know, the, the kind of the peak in wheelchair basketball. And, you know, Sean's the big hoops fan in the, you know, yeah. in this studio here. And, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more the, you know, the endurance sport, you know, fan on that side, cycling and running and, and, and all of those things. So, you know, you, you're coming out of the wheelchair experience and, and everything there. How did it happen that you got into, you know, marathoning and, and doing the Ironmans and triathlons and all, how did that come about? Yeah, so uh, maybe you've seen it too, but I saw the Ironman World Championships, the NBC program that they have every year. And I saw that and I'm like, oh, this would be a great place to learn how to run, bike and swim because I'd never done that um, up to that point. And so I'm one of those type A kind of people. So if I I do something, I'm going to try to do it at the highest level or why even bother, right? And so the very next day, you know, I Googled the Ironman and it was a lot harder than that hour program. You know, <laughs> you know it was a 2.4 mile swim and then a 112 mile bike ride and then a marathon 26.2 mile run. And so a long way and a long day. And so I was like, wow, I don't know if I can do this. You know, it's like anything. It's like everything's in the details. And so I'm like, all right, I can't go to the local running store and buy a pair of running shoes. So I have to get a, a leg made so I can run. And so I tried to research and find, you know, where to, where to get a running leg because there's not, you know, just go down to Walmart and get it. And so I found a place and found a, a guy that would make me a running leg. And so 
I remember it was his first time making one and my first time running it. And I got the run after he made it. I ran for about 30 seconds. Hmm. I remember it just like, oh, this is the most amazing thing ever. But then I'm like, my leg hurts, my leg hurts. So I take my leg off and it is bleeding. And so it was, it was cool to be able to run for those 30 seconds, but I had to stay off my leg for like two months after that. So, so it's, it's taken a long time to develop, you know, a relationship with someone that can make my legs in the, in the highest level and uh, to make it comfortable and to be able to do that. So those, that first running experience was beautifully horrible. So it was... <laughs> the, the contrast of, you know, running for the first time, you know, since you were eight years old had to be right. just... Uh, Incredible. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I'm smiling thinking about it. You know, I, yeah. I ran this morning. I wasn't smiling as much then, but back then I was like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> it was really cool. But so, how did you, I mean, the, you know, the magnitude of doing an Ironman, you know, I mean, any, really any one of the three events, the run and the bike or the, or, or, or the swim, any one of those in and of itself is a, is a huge physical, you know, uh, challenge. How did you go about tackling that when, you know, you, you're really starting, for the most part, at ground zero on, in each, uh, each of the sports. Or below ground zero, for sure. Yeah, so it's just, I, like anything that I've ever done in life is like, if, if I really want to do it, I'll find a way to get it done. And so for me, it was just, you know, after those two months of not being able to wear my leg, I got another leg and a, a different fit, and I was able to run for like two minutes. And then, and then it was four minutes. And so it was just kind of like, one step after another I had to learn how to swim I got a book and got a friend that could teach me how to swim and did that and then I had to learn how to ride a bike and and get a biking leg made for that and so for me it was just that if I wanted to do it I, I needed to understand the details and and I needed more importantly to find a mentor and I'm very lucky that I've had a mentor in everything that I've kind of excelled at and so I, I think that you can learn so much by someone that's been there and done that and I, I really believe why make the same mistakes if they're easily teachable, you know? And so if that mentor has already made those mistakes and he can tell me what not to do, I want to do that. So who was, who was this mentor that you had for the Ironman? Uh, so it's a local guy, David Wan. And so um, an older individual, but he, you know, had been there and done that. And so he kind of took me under his wing and uh, kind of told me what to do and definitely what not to do. But it was hard because he wasn't an amputee, so he didn't understand that part. So, yeah, so I was, I was lucky to be able to, you know, bounce ideas off of other amputees that had been there, done that. And so I, I was lucky to, you know, develop a relationship with uh, my leg maker, a prosthetist. And, and it's actually, you guys are based out of New York, and so is he. So Hicksville. Yeah, there okay. you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Jeff, I'm curious, you know, most people, they you know, they'll excel in one sport and, you know, and, and it's not so easy to transition to, you know, to others. And you excelled in two very different sports, uh, you know, in, in, on the wheelchair basketball side and, and then on the endurance side of things. Was there a difference in mentality that was required to, you know, from, from excelling in the basketball side to, you know, moving to marathons and, and triathlons? No, I just think it's, it all boils down to the work ethic. You know, if I, if I had that goal and I had that desire to, to become as good as I could become, then it was just going to be put in the work, you know, research it, put in the work and find out the details that I need. 
and and learn the things I need to and then and then grind it every single day. And so like even today, every pretty much day, I wake up at 4.30 in the morning and I do my workouts then. And so it's, uh, it's just setting that alarm clock and putting it into work. And I really believe that anyone can accomplish anything, but they're going to have to work for it. And so a lot of people think it's just uh, easy and given to them, but it's really not. And so, like you said earlier, people you know look at you and like, oh, it's, it's easy for you to have this or to have that. I'm like, well, uh, I don't have this or that, and I can still accomplish anything that I want. Yeah. So, how long was the journey from you know you're you're on the couch watching TV, you see the Iron Man on on NBC? How long is it from that point until you competed in your first one? I I think it was uh, about three months later. I competed in a Olympic distance race, and so it's smaller distance than the Iron Man. So. I remember doing that. I was so rookie new at it. I, w- I ran the first mile of my run in my bike helmet. And so not, <laughs> proud, not proud about that moment, but uh, my wife's got some good pictures for it. But yeah, so for me, it was just like, yeah, I set my goal, find my race and then put in the work for it. And so that was, that was the easy part. It was, for me, it's if I, f- I need to find something I'm passionate about and then I can go into it fully. Yeah. So, you know, to that point, you've, you've kind of set your sights on a number of, of different things and, and shot really high for it. How have you picked it? And, and maybe why have you picked those particular things? Is it more just the, the challenge of it that you, you like pushing yourself? Was it the, the process or the, the specific sports? Yeah, I think it's a lot to do with the opportunity. You know, I was always told I couldn't play sports and then I was, you know, found, I was recruited hopping to the bathroom, you know? And so that was an opportunity. And I saw how much fun and how competitive uh, the wheelchair basketball was. I loved it and developed that fully. And then I was given an opportunity to to run. And I, I remember getting a, a sponsor to pay for my first running leg. And so that's the only way I could afford it. And because uh, these things are expensive. And so I got that opportunity and then I wanted to develop that fully. And so after that, Grace and I did that climbing climbing center and I got an opportunity. And so, but with any opportunity, you can either say yay or nay. And so I'm usually one for saying, yeah, let's try it. And then once I try it, I'm like, yeah, I could do that. Or yeah, that wasn't for me. And then, then I go in that direction. So were there any that, that you tried out that you kind of decided weren't for you? Not yet. Uh, fishing, <laughs> fishing is on the fence with me. Now during COVID, uh, my son like loves, 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 loves fishing. And I didn't know anything about it uh, up until like uh, March. And then he's like, well, let's, let's get a boat. Let's learn how to fish. And so we have a small little uh, bass boat. And so we're fishing. We even went out fishing this morning. And so it's one of those love-hate ones. You, know, you catch a fish, you're like, I love it. You, don't, you get skunked and you don't catch anything. And you're like, ah, I don't know about this. Yeah. So, so that might be on the fence for me, this fishing thing. But, but it's, a, it's a lot of fun. So Yeah. Well, I, as, a, as a, uh, a dad with a, you know, an older son, I, I will share with you that the one of the things that when my son was young, he got into, you know, riding dirt bikes and things like that. And, and so he and I would ride together. And when he was a teenager and I wasn't cool, it was still cool to ride the dirt bikes, you know? So we had a lot of together time we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So maybe fishing is your dirt bikes, you know, and uh, (laughs) Uh, 
It's it's not a cheap sport though. We we go to Bass Pro Shop like every other day. <laughs> well, well, you know, mo- most sports aren't cheap. You know, the you know whether it's whether it's getting the wheelchairs or the legs or you know yeah. buying you know buying tri bikes and those kind of things. It all adds up. Exactly. Good hobby. So there you go. So so Jeff, are there any challenges, new challenges that you're that you're actively working on right now? Uh, so for me, it's just trying to finish the challenge that I'm on, and that's the Explorers Grand Slam. And so, you know, I want to finish that. I'm not thinking about doing anything else until I accomplish that goal. And so, you know, I get asked that question, you know, what's next? And I'm like, like well, there's always space exploration. It could be the first amputee in space. That'd be pretty cool. But, you know, I don't know. And so for me, it's like there'll be another opportunity that comes my way. And so when that opportunity comes, I'll see it and then I'll go into it full force like I do everything else. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's so many other opportunities that I've had too. You know, I got to compete in the American Ninja Warrior. And so there's just different things that, you know, that, that have been presented and, you know, I've, I've kind of gone with it and, and developed it as much as I could. So what was it like competing in American Ninja Warrior? It was hard. It was probably one of the harder things I've done because it's a it's a young person's game, and and so I'm not exactly young on the Ninja World uh, tour for sure. Being you know mid 40s at that time, and yeah, so they t- they tell you you know you apply for the American Ninja Warrior in January. They tell you like three weeks before the, your show that you got selected. So all of a sudden I'm getting this phone call from the producer to like yeah, we, uh, we've selected you and, you know, time to get training. And so me being me, you know, go all into it, you know, met and befriended, you know, some of the top ninjas. We were living in Golden, Colorado at the time. And uh, so I, I met and befriended Jake uh, Murray and uh, Brian Arnold and Megan Martin. And so I got to train with them. And uh, so me being me going full into it in those three weeks, I went to the emergency room twice and the urgent care room once. And so... <laughs> So that was pretty painful. So I messed up my right shoulder uh, pretty bad. And so right before the competition, I could barely lift up my arm. And so I only made it through the second obstacle before I took a, a plunge in that cold, cold water. Um, but it was really cool. Get, different experience because it was something I'd never done before. I mean, all of those skills, you know, are definitely learned and I didn't have enough time to to fully develop that. But the cool part about it is it's my son's favorite show. And so he said, dad, we get to go, you know, we get to hang out with all the cool ninjas and train with them. So he would go with me. And so I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm a cool ninja too, you know? And so, <laughs> uh, so it was cool. It was just an opportunity that, uh, that presented itself and, and I took advantage of it. That's very cool. Very cool. Well, if you do set your sights on, you know, doing some space exploration or something, we're definitely going to have to have you back for, for a round two. Yeah, that, that'd even be a better view than Everest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would think so. So, Jeff, I, I want to be respectful of your time. But before we wrap up, if there was one thing that you wanted people to remember from this conversation, what would that be? Have self-confidence. I think uh, when I was young, I didn't have that self-confidence. I thought that, you know, that the world was too big for me. I think now that I've realized that, you know, that especially in the times we're in now with the COVID, it's like every single thing, it seems like it's a negative. 
It's almost like climbing Mount Everest, you know, take two steps forward and one step back. And so for me, it's just having that self-confidence in yourself, you know, and take a look in that mirror, you know, thinking to yourself, am I doing everything that I can do to be my best, my best self? And so I think a lot of people, you know, just blame other people for their situation that they're in. And so for me, it's if you can, you know, look in yourself in the mirror and be proud of yourself, you know, it doesn't matter if you climb Mount Everest or play wheelchair basketball or do anything like that. And so I think that that's what you can do is just have that self-confidence and that belief in yourself that you can really do anything you want. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's so true that, you know, we, we, so many people, they beat themselves up rather than build themselves up. And then, you know, and it's amazing what we can accomplish if we just give ourselves permission to. Exactly. I mean, that's it. That, truly there are no limits and i think that that's part of the reason why i do some of the stuff that i want to do you know is because i want to prove that you know i can do much so much more than my disability tells me that i can and so i think all of us have you know kind of a disability within us you know you can see mine but uh we all have something that we're we're challenged about and so it's just getting out of our own way and and accomplishing those goals that we want to accomplish yeah well i think you've done such a great job of setting that example so Thank you for that. And Jeff, thanks for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is brought to you by Two Logical's new virtual seminar, Adapt, How to Thrive in a World of Turbulence. Join David Naylor in this exclusive live event with leadership insights on how to effectively transition and manage your team remotely, create a new team purpose and vision for 2021, turn fear and uncertainty into consistent motivation and action, and a whole bunch more. Go to twological.com for more information on dates. And as a listener of this podcast, you get a 20% discount on tickets. Just use the code ADAPT2020 at checkout. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is also brought to you by Mojo, the mental fitness app incubated at Twological. With new insights and guidance every day, people that use Mojo report feeling less stress and more motivated, boosted performance at work, and improved well-being at home. You even get access to episodes of this podcast up to two weeks early on Mojo. Mojo is available through invitation only, so join the waitlist at joinmojo.com to reserve your place in line.